Okay, so it's it's really nice to be back with all with all you and see your lovely, beautiful, smiling faces. <laughs> um, yeah, welcome. Come on in. So, um, just before I start into kind of the topic today, just wondering if anybody has any um, questions related to the practice, uh, the way I described it, um, anything that's coming up for you. It doesn't have to be just this session, but your practice in general with concentration. Yeah. There's so many ways to combine concentration and insight. What, what way do you segue from concentration and insight? Um, I use a lot of different ways myself because I, I was trained primarily in the in the Galugan Nyingma traditions of the of Tibetan Buddhism, where then we have like a lot of practices of insight um, that are both analytical or investigative, using the thinking mind, and non-analytical, just non-conceptual. Um, so I've used those over the years. Um, lately, I'm kind of really digging more Theravada early Buddhist techniques um, of insight of just um, basically I'll, I'll work with concentration for a little while, uh, kind of growing that muscle, and then drop the, the anchor. So if I'm using the body or the breath as an anchor, I, I work a lot with the anchor just being choiceless awareness, um, just either uh, the clarity of mind itself or just resting the resting. What? A Zen it's in the Tibetan tradition too, yeah. We call it um, shamatha without support or calm abiding without support. And then um, and then from there, sometimes you there's a there's a wall you can like break in you just end up breaking into insight on its own. Or I'll just use more of the Theravada technique of just watching uh, through one of the four foundations. So watching the body, watching the feeling, watching thoughts and emotions, or just watching uh, space or when phenomena. You're watching the body, do you, do you progressively move your attention through the body, or do you focus on the feeling of a particular No, that that is a technique, though. That's the, the more the body scan technique. No, I personally just sort of, I usually just uh, watch everything. So I just like leave all the senses open. Sometimes like sound comes through. Watching that, watching my my thought process as it's sort of reacting to that or any emotional processes that are coming up could be sometimes like sensations come. So it's a little bit more like um, like a Vipassana of just staying or an insight practice of just staying open and then watching the experience. You, you noting or you just have bare awareness? Just bare awareness, yeah. But I would say in the beginning it's pretty tough to do that. So then I think noting can be a, a helpful technique. Um, noting whatever the emotion is that's coming up or the sensation. Uh, if we're working on the, the, um, with the foundation of feeling, noti noting pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant, that kind of thing. That can be really useful in the beginning. Um, me in particular, there's, in, in the Tibetan tradition, we're, we're growing also a, a, like a non-conceptual knowing. So it's a little, so it moves more into that. And they don't have as much, it depends what tradition you're accessing in Tibetan Buddhism, but they, they don't, some of them scaffold more into that, and then some of them scaffold less. Where we can see in the Theravada tradition, there's quite a lot of scaffolding in through the four foundations. The first working with, with the breath, uh, the first foundation with the breath, and then all the 16 aspects and the different ways of working with that, right? 
But um, so I think that could be quite skillful for for Westerners, and then it depends what tradition you want to access. But I like this working with the breath or an anchor of practice, and then just the at a certain point the awareness is just there, and just letting that awareness rest, and just watching the experience. And something over time starts to because I noticed for me specifically, you're not asking this, but I'm just going to add on to it. For me specifically that feeling of of self or that feeling of of the body being me or the feeling being me starts to loosen and there starts to come a little bit of space which i call like it's like the stickiness of ego starts to unglue a little bit and then slowly there's an experience of oh well the body's not the body's not me but it's not the thinking mind knowing that it's something else knowing that and so that's the point of all these practices working into that so whatever works to do that but i'd say in the beginning, um, yeah, body scan techniques can work really good in noting. And you do all that within one session, so sure. start with concentration and let that fall and become... I think so, yeah, and I, yeah, definitely, yeah, you can, yeah, depends how much time you have, you can split it in half or something like that. Um, in the Thai force tradition, they also have, they seem to do a lot more combined um, uh, samadhi and uh, uh, panya or wisdom practice or combined samatha and vipassana so working with concentration working with insight but in a way they cross over because when you're when you're just working with one of the foundations you, you are having you're you're bringing your concentration to the experience and you're and when you get distracted you're bringing your attention back but you're also um you're it's not just concentration because you're you're watching you're, you're there is a kind of subtle investigation happening yeah but not with a thinking mind, just being aware. So that's kind of a combined uh, insight concentration practice. Yeah. 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 You may have answered the question, but I'm not sure. Um, if, I, if you could offer some recommendations. For some reason, it, it, it happens a lot. Little way is in, all of a sudden, you know, everything's good, I'm in my space, and then I just get this like, anxiety where I break out in a cold sweat, and I feel this, you know, I, I gotta get out of here now. You know, I don't know if anyone else ever experiences that, but it's, <laughs> and I work through it, and I'm just wondering if that's normal. It's just, yeah. I don't know. I think you're you're totally screwed up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> you're totally hopeless. <laughs> um, no, I, I, you know, I, I think normal is a word I would say. Hmm. I don't. I'm trying to be. I'm a little feeling a little naughty this morning, so I gotta be. I gotta be careful when I'm a little feeling that way because I'll say something I regret. Not you, what you're saying, but I think normal is something we have to start to throw out in our society a little bit because it's it's created a lot of problems socially, and and it creates a lot of problems as a meditator because um, then we're looking for normalcy in something that's not normal because like. You know, the way we function with, with, like from a Buddhist perspective, having a self is not normal. It's, it's, that's the sort of relating to ourselves as a fixed, permanent experience. We're going to, forms the basis for fear and, and anxiety and all these things. So anyways, uh, <laughs> side note. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, yeah, things can come up like that. And I think because um, depending on past um, uh I learned a new term the other day. Um, I'm forgetting it now, though. 
Anyways, um, people are throwing around the word trauma, so it's another word for that to, to describe just, oh, adverse life experiences. So we all, we all have those to some degree. And those, you know, those can be stored in different ways, and there's different systems of understanding. And in Tibetan tradition, eventually we come to an understanding that that's actually stored in the body, and it's stored in our energy body or our subtle body. And so when, we, when we're accessing deeper states of concentration, those things can start to come up because there's not the chatter of the thoughts and the chatter of the mind all the time. So often this is where you know, the rubber meets the road because people sign up for mindfulness meditation sometimes and then realize, wait, I, I feel like shit, you know? I don't wanna, <laughs> I thought this was supposed to help me, you know? And the truth is that like, the more we're able to come to how we are, how, meaning like how we are in, in, in its um, dynamic and more integrative, more complete aspect of just like we are a collection of, of habits over many, over a lot of time and, and life. And so when we start to meditate the, the, and the chatter of the thoughts go down, the chatter of the emotions go down, then all the fun stuff can start to come out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And fun being sarcastic <laughs> so so yeah so i think that's fine that's normal in, the, in that sense um i would say um then i think the process is to be with that as much as you can if it's not a, a if it's not going to retrigger retrigger a certain trauma try to be with it and um you know we have practices too i think of going back to the body this is where the first foundation can be really helpful going back to the body you know, just feel the body. Because sometimes we can use the breath. Well, the breath is body, but um, sometimes, again, it's this very subtle line for ourselves where it's so, we're so trained not to feel. We're so trained to sort of like, oh, I don't want to feel bad at any cost, you know? For me, it's like, if I'm in a weird mood, go get an ice cream. That's like my way of like not, not feeling, you know? So, or, or whatever it is. So I'd say um, if you can, in that moment, touch in with that experience, um, you can drop the anchor of practice if it comes up very strongly and just feel the anxiety. Bring the awareness to that, but don't try to control it. Don't try to manipulate it. Don't try to fix it. Just be with that. Treat that as your kind of concentration practice, and then you can go back to the breath. And then once you get very stable with the breath and body as, a, as an object of concentration, we're able to be aware in this more panoramic kind of 360 degree sense, which both includes all the sense perceptions, but it also includes like our, our um, uh, yeah, our, the feeling in our body, emotions, thoughts. And then there's a way of knowing where we know, but we're just more focusing on the breath. And so therefore, by the knowing, we're not ignoring completely. There's still an acknowledgement that it's happening. So I don't know, there's a bunch of techniques you can use to work with that, but, but I'd say, um, yeah, that's the unfortunate news. Is uh, that's you know th that's the side effect of meditation. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. Yeah, and it's a, from a Buddhist perspective, this is a good thing, and I'll explain why. Like this is that's kind of today's talk. So yeah, yeah, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else? <laughs> about this in another place, 
I was told that if you, if there's a, there's a lot of potential, right, a lot of stuff going on, but if there's a thought that keeps on, it's really strong and keeps on reappearing, and then we investigate. Is, is that what you're referring to as when you say the insight aspect? Maybe. Um, I mean, insight is a whole framework uh, of practices and a whole um, way of looking. And, and essentially, I mean, yeah, I'll get into it a little bit in today's talk. Because essentially, the point here is to, is to know our, ourselves, is to know how things actually are. That's the whole point of the Buddhist path. So then the con concentration practices are just a means to that. Yeah? And even the practices of insight are a means to that. You, you, you see what I mean? So then we have a lot of different practices to work with that. That's why, yes, like, um, you can investigate, like, the nature of a thought. Like, that's one way. And you can investigate it through different ways. Like, uh, sometimes in Tibetan Buddhism, we'll investigate uh, where, did, you know, where did the thought come from? Where does it abide? Where did, where did it go? Sometimes we'll investigate sort of the interdependent nature of it. So this is a bit more like using philosophy and more, more investigative wisdom. And then sometimes we'll just rest on the thought. So then the practices of insight can be quite straight, more straightforward and simple. Like I said uh, to this gentleman, where we're just watching the thought. You know, not watching, I w but I want to be careful when I say the word watching too, because watching isn't a dissociative. We're watching well-being, because it, it's an experience happening to us, but it is not us, ultimately. So we're just watching, being with, and then some insight can develop out of that. So the question here is, what is insight? I think that's the question here. Or we'd use the term panya or prajna, or which is uh, Sanskrit and Pali for wisdom. So what is wisdom from a Buddhist perspective? Yeah. But yeah, definitely, that's one way to work with insight, but there's many ways. Yeah. yeah. I suspect it could be a whole talk, but I'm, I'm intrigued by your concept of stickiness of the ego. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> wow, you guys are you guys are asking big questions. I'm trying. To, it's it's good. It's good. No, no, we could do the whole talk just questions. I've done that before too. Um, uh, the stickiness. Yeah, I mean, this is just sort of our relationship to self, and sort of a relationship to how we view. Um, our five, you know, we, 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 the Buddha basically uh, divided the self into five aggregates, right? And those five aggregates basically can, basically can be summed up as like just different parts of body and mind, right? And then our relationship to those as sort of where the self, the me, the I, where we describe, like when someone says, where are you? I'm here. But what is it, you know, what do we mean by that? What does it mean the body's here, the mind's here, all those kinds of ways of talking about it. And um, the stickiness specifically is just sort of like our normal way of functioning, at least my way, I don't know about you, <laughs> is that when an emotion comes up, a strong emotion, let's say anger comes up, I am the anger. There's no like other option happening here, right? Just the anger. And it's not like I'm thinking I'm this anger now, you know, I'm not thinking that. It just happens, and, and it, feels like, it feels like a sense of self is there. And as a meditator, what happens is we, we start to create some space between the, the reaction or experience and then our sense of self. Now, 
I can use that language to describe it, but um, it's an experience. And we come to this over time, over a lot of practice, of noticing, oh, there is some sense there. There's some sense of like an autonomy, something that's in independent, uh, that's permanent there, that I'm believing is this emotion or related to this emotion. Like somebody did something to me. That guy in the 405 cut me off, you know? Like whatever the experience, right? So as a meditator, like I said, we start to create some space. And what that does is it uh, starts to unglue us from that stickiness of being the experience, being the emotion, the, the sensation, the thought, whatever it is. It's quite a skillful thing, sort of uh, the Buddha um, breaking out our body-mind construct sense of self into these five aggregates because it, it becomes quite clear um, like how we relate to ourselves. And you know, we could think of it as well when we start to are able to gain some mindfulness of thought or mindfulness of emotion and, or feeling, we start to see, oh yeah, there are these things that are just, that are there. And there's some space that starts to happen. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of you have experienced this. So that's intimating, or I don't know if that's the right word, but that's going to eventually move us into anatta or not-self in, in Buddhism. So that's the whole point, because it's like figuring out like, okay, what is the misapprehension that's causing my, the suffering in my life? What's the misapprehension that's causing, you know, not well-being, you know, the opposite of joy, all these kinds of things, as well as from a religious Buddhist perspective, we would say causes us to circle in samsara, in rebirth, in karma and afflictive emotions, you know? Because it's not the, the afflictive emotions are like the result of that, yeah? Because we could see if there's, if there's sort of like um, more of a fluid relationship with our experience, afflictive emotions can just come and go, no big deal. But when we're less fluid, we're caught up in them, yeah? Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of feeds in last Wednesday, David talked about separating. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think we have to be careful here, too, because the language can start to sound dis dissociative, and it's not. This is, but that has to come in experience. It's very hard to explain this, because it's a feeling like I'm not the emotion, but yet I still feel it. And it, it's still very juicy for me and alive. And, like, it's actually quite beautiful. I don't know. I haven't seen something to me... I don't know, but it develops over the years of practice, right? I don't know, I get more excited by that because it's like, oh, I can be a full human being. Like, there's nothing I have to deny here. I'm not trying to, like, become something I'm not. I'm trying to become what I am. Or, or, or another way to say it is, like, in Buddhism, we uncover enlightenment. We're not building enlightenment. It just seems like that because we have dualistic concepts of, like, accumulating something and discarding something else. But if something is our essence, and that's what the teaching is from a Buddhist perspective, that enlightenment is actually our, our essence, then it, needs, it just needs to be uncovered. It needs to be brought out more. And you can see that when we actually meditate in this kind of way I described earlier, that's not necessarily wisdom because we're working more in concentration, but it does lead to it. And so all of the means within Buddhism are really leading us to this deeper insight and wisdom of what we actually are, which is free. 
unencumbered. The word Sangye is what we use to, it means Buddha in, in Tibetan, right? And so, uh, but it's a, the way the Tibetans, Tibetans base their language off of Sanskrit. And, and um, it's a beautiful word. So it's, it's actually two words, San and then Ge. So Sangye. And um, the San aspect of it really is talking more about the removal like someone or a, a, a being who has removed all afflictions, all neurotic uh, reactions, neurotic, or I should say uh, neurosis. They've removed all neurosis. They've removed all afflictions, all doubt, pride, anger, attachment. It's been removed. So that's the sun part, right? Um, and then the gay is they've, out of that, all the qualities of enlightenment have grown, which is limitless, boundless compassion, boundless love, uh, what we would say like, um, people don't like hearing this because the words kind of reflect Judeo-Christian things sometimes, but basically omniscience and, and um, what's the other word, omnipresent? Is that a word? Is that this? That's, yeah. Like uh, all-powerful is kind of how we say it. Omnipotence, yeah, like that. I th every time I say that word, I think of the Wizard of Oz. I don't know why. Like the, the what is it? Oz, right? Yeah. So anyways, the word omnipotence is a bit of a tricky word in English. It's not really what it represents in Buddhism, but it represents that like, then there's the, when, when enlightenment is uncovered, then it's like all ability to express enlightened nature is there. And then great compassion for others who aren't experiencing that, all that kind of thing. So it's like, a, a um, we're not moving to something that's inert, that's... Uh, lifeless that's robotic we're also not moving in buddhist practice we're also not moving to something that's um like uh where we just check out and drink uh margaritas in some heaven like that's not where it's going yeah so it, it just i don't mean to bum you out and ruin your your future enlightened vacation if that's what you're looking forward to but uh but it's tough because yeah because it's like as a human being we're in this spot where we want peace you know, we want ease because it's 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 hard. Uh, we you know life is not easy, and so we want peace. But then it's sort of like the unfortunate news, just like the title of the talk today, is you know we have to relate to that mud. There's just no choice, and it's actually the first teaching of the Buddha. You know we have to relate to that mud. So, anyways, maybe I'll go into the. <laughs> this is all, by the way all the questions and all this. This is an off topic, just to let other people know. Uh, if you're like, why are we spending so much time on this? It's on topic, so don't, don't worry. <laughs> um, so let's see. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so this, this kind of title, I, it sounds like I think I, uh, No Mud, No Lotus. It's actually a Thich Nhat Hanh, Han book. Probably a lot of you know that already. And um, someone told me this a little while ago in uh, No Mud, No Lotus. And I thought, oh, that must be like a like a bumper on like a, a new age store or something like a sticker <laughs> you know it sounds like that and I usually uh, stay away from those kinds of phrases but I really like this one I think it sort of sums up a lot of the Buddhist path here um, so you can read the Thich Nhat Hanh book it's it's quite a beautiful book as his books usually are but anyways um, what I really wanted to talk about was we're already kind of talking about it so I don't have to reintroduce something but just this way in Buddhism of, of how we, we navigate the path. So, you know, we navigate the path through relating to our experience, through trying to come to how things are, 
rather than trying to find out some different way. So it's sort of like when I first entered the Buddhist path, I was looking for something that was like different than my experience, something, you know, amazing and blissful or something like that. And uh, I, over the, you know, maybe in the first five or six years, it was kind of a bummer because I learned, oh, that's, that's not going to happen. Like, that's really hard. <laughs> and that's also like not really what this is doing, right? And then after maybe five or six more years, um, I'm, 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 I'm quite, I have, I should say now after 18 years, I have quite a lot of, um, I'm really like, I have a lot of joy around that experience. So it's sort of like, and, and, and one could think like, how do you get off? on like relating to your pain and suffering and it's just such a weird experience and I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this but for me I mostly avoided it most of my life I wasn't taught how to relate to uh, my difficult emotional experiences to you know even something sim as simple as boredom I wasn't taught how to relate to that you know uh, we have a culture that you know if you if you have a problem take this you know if you have a problem go here if you have a problem turn on the TV. So as a kid, I was addicted a lot to video games. So that was my way of sort of escaping. And, um, and then of course, the, those grew into uh, more painful habits of, of drinking and drug use and all that kind of stuff and more uh, things that weren't as helpful for me, <laughs> for my body and mind. And eventually in the Buddhist path, uh, I would say, yeah, good chunk of it in the first few years at least, if not more. Um, using a lot of spiritual bypass. So using, I don't know if some, some of you know this term, but using a lot of the Buddhist path to sort of see like, oh, what, you know, some kind of trying to build some type of belief for myself, belief system, trying to prop myself up, believing I'm a different way than I am, as opposed to looking at how I actually am, looking into my mind. So the bad news is we have to do the, if we, if we really want well-being, joy, and, and ease and peace in our life, we have to look towards the stuff that's not fun to look at. We have to get it, jump into that, as Chogyam Trungpa sometimes says, like jump into the manure of our life and ch start churning that manure, right? So at first, this is quite scary. It's not, a, a, it's not an easy process. It's not a fun process. <laughs> and, and, I, and anyone who jumps into that, I really bow to them because it's courageous. Yeah? Especially if we jump into it on behalf of others, too. That's where, in Mahayana Buddhism, we do all this for the benefit of others. So it jumps into it with that kind of motivation. So we need some kind of, in that leap, whether we've been practicing for a while and we realize we've been spiritual bypassing a lot, or we're just starting out and we, we wanna, we're willing to go there. And I think we have a lot of good teachings nowadays and, and um, people, you know, a lot of good books on Buddhism I think it's pretty well known and people are realizing, okay, we need to get real. And we're, we're having, you know, sy you know, systems of oppression come more to light in our culture now. Um, uh, uh, systems of oppression becoming more, what do you call it, brave and, and brazen in their acts of violence on others. So, um, so this is a time, I think, also where we can really wake up. We can really start to look at things. And again, I'm not saying uh, systems in the sense of, in the practice here, we're not blaming any outside thing for our own mind. Our own mind is our own mind. So the good news is that this is really the main teaching of the Buddha, that our mind is workable. 
that even though we're going to go in and churn and work with the difficulties, trying to get down to the ground of what's actually going on, this is all workable. It's all changeable. It's not fixed. It's not permanent, right? So we have to remember that too as we go in. And we also have to go in with a, where I was trying to get to was we have to go in with a, a compassionate, open heart, a loving heart, really seeing, like having, having that experience of being able to bear witness to the suffering, but have love for ourselves, yeah? Understand that we're worthy, that we have value. We deserve awakening. We deserve uh, liberation and all these things we talk about in Buddhism. It's actually our nature. It's like, in a way, it's kind of our birthright although that's a funny word to use here, but it's, it's our birthright in a bigger sense, in a more universal sense. So the more we come into that aspect of what I used usually call original purity versus original sin, because in Buddhism there is no original sin. There's not this sense that we are fucked up somewhere and we're trying to get unfucked. You know, it's not really, that's, that's not really what's going on. It's just that Everything was actually cool, and then something got fucked up. <laughs> so, we're, so in this sense, from a Buddhist perspective, we're, we're originally valuable. And so what's hard is, is uh, like I said, a lot of us have these um, adverse life experiences and, and ways, cultural ways of relating to ourselves where we don't value ourselves because maybe others didn't value us in certain ways, and then slowly our emotional life gets cut off from our thinking life. And so in our thinking life, we're pretty awesome. Or I should say, I'm pretty awesome in my thinking life. I'm actually an amazing person. But in my feeling world, not so much, you know? So over the years, for me, it's also been reconnecting with that. And that, again, isn't really fundamentally a Buddhist practice, but I think for us it's a necessary step. It's like a preliminary of having to work with our well-being, work with our value as a human being. Uh, I would say we're, we're not working with making low self-esteem high self-esteem. We're working more with like basic confidence. And from a Buddhist perspective, it's recognizing this confidence in connection with our practice, that we're fundamentally okay. Yeah. But here that okayness is related to this construct of what we call body and mind not being what we think it is, right? So okayness is not a place. It's not a place we reach in Buddhism where suddenly we're okay and happy. Yeah? We can get joy and well-being from the practice, of course. Like that happens over time because as our neurotic relationship to thoughts and emotions sort of goes down more, we're going to find more joy. We're going to find more ease, for sure. <coughs> like that's just a natural side effect. But at the same time, what we're going to start to find if we're really practicing this, this, uh, this insight and practicing concentration and com combination with insight and understanding the fuller picture in Buddhism, we're going to start to be able to see this body is something I'm inhabiting right now. The emotions are something that's happening to me, but it's not me. And then we move further and further. Well, what is me? And so we have this saying uh, that uh, the Buddha said, uh, not finding is the supreme finding. So eventually we're working with not finding. But we think in the beginning, that not finding is going to be some state of nothingness or some state of uh, nihilism or we're going to disappear or not exist anymore. And that's just not what we're talking about here. But until we come to that, we, we start to experience this even on a small level. Because again, I don't feel there's like a, 
like a big bang of awakening, we have a lot of small moments of awakening that add up to this bigger awakening. And we can even see from the path where, you know, one becomes, uh, we work with training in, in the, either the Bodhisattva path or the uh, Shravakayana path, and we, we train that way. And eventually we become arhats, like someone who has a direct realization of this not-self and doesn't part from that. But still there's some subtle obscuration, so we have to keep progressing into Buddhahood. This is in the religious context of how the path progresses, right? So we can see within that, it's just a process, yeah? So opening our compassionate hearts to that process of where, wherever we're at in that right now, we have to, uh, the more we can relate to our value and just show up and do it, not expect anything, let go of the perfectionism, and just, I, I call it do the work, you know? Just do the work, show up and do it. But the work is also not this analytical, what do you call it, um, mechanical work. It's the work of, as our, we open more to our nature, what we actually are, uncovering our enlightened nature, it's like a, uh, a curtain that opens where also our compassion, love, and connection with others grows. Because that's our nature. Our nature is in relationship. We can't avoid it. We're interdependent with each other. We're not the same in the sense like, uh, I think a thought, you don't think the same thought. But we're connected. We're interconnected. So that's the reality here. So in one way, Buddhism, we're not trying to build, again, like some construct of how things are. We're trying to uncover uh, how reality actually is, how it functions. And so the Buddha wasn't, I think, intending in the beginning to form some big religion. He was just trying to figure out what the hell is going on here? What's going on with me? Yeah? And so it's really this investigation into and what into mind, into experience. And mind here is more than just the brain in Buddhism. I think all you know that. Mind here is connected to the body. Um, it's connected to a larger experience. We also have, in Buddhism, we talk about outer, inner, and subtlemost mind. So we have different descriptions of the levels of mind. But in, in essence, that's what we're relating to here. And that's what we're trying to connect with, deepen, understand that things are also changeable. Nothing's fixed. Nothing's permanent. Yeah? So there's even value in that, if you think about it. It's quite beautiful. Just in that very fact that things are not permanent, that they're changeable. So let's see what my notes say. <laughs> so, the Buddha's first teaching then, like, so as the Buddha really was trying to come down to how, how is my suffering actually functioning? Like how is, what is preventing me from this fuller awakening? And as you know, a lot of you probably read the life story of the Buddha, you know, he went through a process and the story is also an analogy for the path. So we can use his life story like that, of going through opulence, materialism, seeing the vacuity and, and emptiness and uh, not emptiness in a negative sense, emptiness and um, uh, suffering there. Then he left, you know, did a lot of practices that were kind of more extreme and then saw the suffering in that and then found a more of a middle path of again trying to, trying to uncover how, how am I seeing things that is preventing a fuller being, a fuller awakening, right? So once this happened and then the Buddha reluctantly agreed to teach <laughs> on this meaning he had to be requested and then he didn't you know, he thought, this is quite difficult. I don't think anybody's going to be able to understand this, you know. And what he was referring to is that, yes, we experience the body, we experience the mind, 
but it not being us, yeah? So what does that mean? Are people going to be able to experience this? So he was reluctant. And eventually in the first teaching, when he, out of great compassion, he decided to teach, then the first thing he said, right, and the first noble truth is no suffering. Yeah, no suffering. So again, we can see here, just in that first noble truth, if we don't relate to that mud, we can't grow anything, because we have to start to be honest with ourselves. So I think we develop kind of a radical honesty here, where this radical honesty has to be supported by value for ourselves. So the reason we want to be honest is because we value ourselves. You see the difference here? Not because we're trying to build some philosophical view to then argue better with somebody else or throw it on someone else, or I should say oftentimes argue with ourselves, like, like convince ourselves some other way and you know, prove to our emotions, you suck, see, I told you, you suck, you know, <laughs> go away, right? <laughs> That's how I related, I think, at first. I tried to prove to the parts of me I didn't like that it sucked, basically, and it should like leave me alone. It only got worse from there. <laughs> and I'm glad it did, right? So, in, in, in a way, because it, 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 it became my teacher, right? It, it still is my teacher. So, here we turn towards life's challenges to the difficulty in life as a teacher, yeah? As a way to learn, to be honest, to grow our relationship with how, how are things actually functioning, right? It's not to, like, be depressed, to bring ourselves down into, like, uh, what's the word, um, just like worrying about suffering all the time or worrying about all this. It's really to be honest with how the situation actually is. So here we're just really chewing on, I, I like to use the word chewing, because sort of chewing is something we just do, and, and, and it's, it, it is a process. This is a little bit different of kind of chewing as opposed to a mechanical kind of process, but it's the chewing where we just sit with something. We get so interested in like, oh, how is that? Like for me now, it's really interesting when a difficult emotion comes up. When I'm able to have that space, I'm not saying I always do. I mean, most of the time I'm just caught up in it. But it's so interesting to just watch it and be like, wow, that's interesting. It sort of has, I have this habit, you know, of relating to this situation like this. Wow, that's so interesting. And then we learn. And so the chewing happens by sitting with our experience um, and then just being interested, being curious, right? But of course we have to create that space. That's why we meditate, right? We create that space. So really chewing on the first noble truth and acknowledging the beauty also within our limitations. So acknowledging where we're at. Yeah, acknowledging that I have this body. That's the first thing. This body was born. It's already gotten sick many times. <laughs> Luckily not like, you know, anything major, but lots of colds, flus, stomach issues, things like that. And all, this body will have to die. And intellectually, that's like, duh, like, <laughs> like obvious, right? But when we chew on that, the process is so rich. And this is what the Buddha is asking us to do. Not just that, but chew on it. It's many forms. How do we relate with our emotions? How? When, we're, when we have those ups, are they really ups? When we have those downs, are they really downs? And working with all this. Again, not to come to some way where, I think this can be used in a weird way too, where we can come to some experience of like, uh, what's the word? 
I can't explain it so well because I can't think of the words to say it, but it's sort of like um, we, we resist looking as well because we just build up this kind of idea of how things are functioning in life and sort of, I blame New Age religion for this, <laughs> but sort of like, oh, like um, ignoring the processes of, of just the truths of life and instead sort of checking out. Yeah, it's definitely a delusion, yeah. It is delusion, yeah. But I can't think of a specific example right now. Anyways, so, so within this is always this process of opening the compassionate heart. So compassion here, how I define it is, um, I define it as bearing witness to suffering. Bearing witness, and suffering here, because we use the Pali word dukkha, which doesn't just mean suffering. It also means dissatisfaction. It means like, you know, basic pain within the body, within the emotions but also just means that moment to moment of, you know, when I sit in this chair long enough, I'm going to have to get up. So even the pleasurable experience of this chair we would call dukkha. Even that pleasure of sitting in a comfortable chair we would call that. And that's a little bit more advanced and difficult to understand. But as we sort of chew and work with that, um, again, we're coming, we, we're able to bear witness more to, to just experience. Able to bear witness more to when something shifts from a satisfactory experience into a dissatisfactory experience, or we expected something in a change. All these kinds of experiences, yeah? So then present moment awareness is the practice we, we work with for that. So we can either do this practice of first, we have to grow our concentration in the moment, working with this habit of constantly being in the past or future and bringing it to the moment. Because then our ability to create this space, to understand, to work with and chew on things is going to be enhanced. It's like growing a muscle. That's how I view it. And so just as we practice the piano, if we start playing and learning our scales, we're not, you know, asking someone and expecting them to be like, to play like a, a full on, um, like the Goldberg variations, you know that by Bach? Like expecting someone to do that after a week is, would be insane. Like no one, if no one would take you seriously. So same with meditating, you know, we're practicing here, we're building our, our resilience, we're growing our, our resilience, we're growing our muscles of awareness. And then over time, we apply that then to Vipassana, or this insight practice, which I already talked about a little bit. And I think this one, this basic one, is just to watch, watch, learn to watch our emotional experience. So the motion is happening, we're feeling it, we're experiencing it, but just watch. Watch the body, watch its, its changes the sensations within it. Eventually, as we progress and get more skilled, we can watch thoughts. So it's a little harder, but we can watch thoughts as they're happening. And it's a tricky space here because uh, we're, we're not dissociating, like I said, but we're also coming to this feeling we're not the thought. So as we do that, we start to gain freedom. We start to gain liberation. And this is the kind of chewing I'm talking about also because the purpose, like I said before, of meditation is not to clear our thoughts, it's not a relaxation technique, it's not a pill, but it's to know our minds. That's the whole point. So know here, in a Buddhist context, means more than just intellectually know. It means this a deeper knowing. And so wisdom in a certain way, or prajna, or insight, is another way of saying it in English, insight practice or insight experience, um, is grows into a deeper experience than just a thought, than just a thinking analytical process. But of course that helps too. That's why we study the Buddhist path. So both serve. Um, 
so anyways, I think I w we can do question and answer more. That's all I really had to say today. But basically, that's what we're working with, is coming to the conclusion that we have to go through. We have to work with that mud. And I think we all know that intellectually. And there's a lot of, you know, even modern uh, psychotherapy, a lot of techniques are working with that. A lot of modalities are working with that. But why, when we come to the spiritual realm, sometimes we think we're doing something different. Sometimes we approach it differently. That somehow the spiritual realm is about feeling something special. Here we're not trying to feel something special. We're just trying to find out what is going on, right? So the quicker we can do that, it's like, it's a little more like pulling the band-aid off quickly versus like very slowly, you know? But I don't know, we each have to go through our process. For me, I feel like there's almost no choice. We just have to work with whatever we have right now. Anyways, it's tough and, yeah. Gotta have courage, bravery, yeah. I believe in you. I think, I think we could all do it, yeah. So yeah, feel free to ask any questions. Yeah. I'm having a little trouble um, understanding uh, the thought or who we are. You said that in, in one sentence you said uh, our thoughts are not us. But then earlier you said you embraced the thought because that's me. Did I say that? I, I thought you. That's what I heard. No, maybe it was uh, maybe it was like in the negative, like saying, "Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't so, remember, but yeah." If your thoughts are not you, who are you? That's for you to find out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's the whole question. That's the whole question. Yeah, that's the whole question. If our if our if the aggregate of form is not us, who are we? If the aggregate of feeling is not us, who are we? Aggregate of perception is is not us, who are we? These are the five aggregates, you know, the aggregate of uh, uh, formations, consciousness, is not me. Who am I? Yeah, like I said, the Buddha never, the Buddha never uh, was interested in finding out who we are. He's finding out like who kind of we not, what is not us, in a way, through the practice itself. So that's what I said. One of the most famous quotes from the Buddha is, uh, the supreme finding is not finding. So anyways, this is, this is uh, meant to be practiced and chewed on. Because the thing is, we want to intellectually know. But intellectually, intellectually knowing anything in this realm we're talking about right now, of, of who are we, all that, um, it's not going to help us that much. But we can understand the process and how things are functioning. Yeah. Why wouldn't it help us to know who we are? Because by intellectually knowing who you are, you're still going to have suffering. You're still going to have... It's not going to change that at all. It's not going to shift that at all. So the, the process of investigation is more what shifts that. The process of diving deep into an experience of what... How we... How... What the misapprehension is. That's what starts to change our experience and shifts our relationship. So at the end of the day, just to make it more clear, what I'm talking about here is more relationship. So it's relationship with thoughts, emotions, the body, the whole sense of self. And so the Buddhist path, a lot of it is just shifting our relationship to that. Into what we would call like the Buddhist notion of reality. Does it have to be exclusive? Like, can't you be enlightened um, and still know yourself? Can't you reach those levels? I'm a, I'm a novice at this. So. No, 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 it's a good question. No, totally. Um, 
I think that's what we'd say enlightenment is, is it's knowing the nature of self, what its nature is. Sorry, I'm not following that. <laughs> yeah, we, we usually use the terms like we're knowing the nature. We're, we're trying to know the nature of the self. But the nature of the self is not self. Sorry, that's just... That's the truth. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's all good. Yeah, no, this... I mean, the concepts are really... They're not easy to understand. Like, you know, they take years of just studying to intellectually understand rather other than exp- experiential. That's why I'm saying it more to you in the group. Like, um, we need to study and understand it intellectually. There's, that helps. But we, as a culture, we get very caught in that very easily. And then we still are, you know, yeah, we're not having a good time underneath all that. So I, I kind of think there's a good balance of like, the practice has to equal the study. Meaning like, for me, I'll just tell you my story. I just studied a lot and really wanted to intellectually know but my practice was way down here i mean it still is down there but so it was a big imbalance so what i started to do was sort of balance that out more up the practice to meet the study and then and then it becomes very rich because then they benefit each other so i think we want to intellectually know something um but it, it the only reason to intellectually know is just to have a good roadmap in the buddhist path then we have a map we, have, we know, okay, maybe it's going to look like this. But when we're actually going through, it's not linear at all. It's like a windy, you know? So, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I think that you might have um, uh, referred to the uh, getting to be yourself when you're talking about the juiciness of the experience, which might have been sort of, there's a difference between uh, you know, being deluded by thought and the juiciness of the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because experience doesn't stop. That's where I think, and actually different Buddhist traditions, there is some slight disagreement on this uh, from the tradition I studied in Mahayana, Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, we don't, uh, the tradition doesn't feel experience stops when you become enlightened. Experience continues. It's just the relationship, the relationship to it changed, or has changed. Yeah. It's no longer dualistic. Yeah. And that, I, that really helped me, actually, because that helped me to turn towards... You see what I'm saying? Like that's why I wanted to say I want to say that. And thanks for the statement or question. Is uh, if we know that, then we know. Okay, now it's just turning towards rather than away from my experience, because the ex- we're not going to be able to get rid of it. We're just going to be able to. But we we can change our relationship to it. Yeah. So I'm just curious. Number of times you made this um, the distinction between dissociation and that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious from your experience how you differentiate and define when it's a dissociative state and when it's that open mind state. That's yeah. For me, I think it has a lot to do with like the willingness to feel. So like when I'm not, when I don't want to feel something and I'm suppressing or repressing it or um, ignoring it somehow, like by trying to check out with some other, you know, whatever, Netflix or whatever, then it's usually a, a, um, a sign that there's kind of some kind of... And I don't mean dissociative in the, in the Western psychological sense. I mean it more in the sense of just like, just the unwillingness to be with it, to feel it. Yeah. And so there's this kind of... It's hard to explain, but there's this kind of process where there's space, yet it's still... We still experience. So like... 
as we meditate over the years, we'll start to have this more this experience of of that where there's like there's an openness, there's a quality of spaciousness, yet it's not like anything's denied. It's just there. But it's like um, one of my teachers has a great example. I like doing this with people, so please do it with me if you'd like. Just try to grab space. <laughs> it's like that. But it's also de- not denying that there's space there. But it's just it's like that, you know? Or as an experience, yeah. This is why I love Buddha. I don't know. This, this thing, what I'm talking about now, this, this, this is why I love Buddhism. It's so beautiful. This experience, and I don't think it's... Again, it's not uh, exclusive to Buddhism. We just have a way of talking about it. This is just our human experience. You know? And if we have a method to come into this, then we'll come into it. Yeah, so I think it's um, just because culturally we have the habit to, to not want to feel. We have the habit of checking out a lot, distracting ourselves from feeling bad. Because we're just... Feeling bad is the worst... You are the worst person in our culture if you feel bad, right? <laughs> I mean, I think. That's been my interpretation of my upbringing. If, if people think of you as the, what is that Saturday Night Live skit, Debbie Downer? Like yeah. that kind of thing, you know? You know? So, so I, think, I think we have to change this relationship. That, that's actually like being a fuller human being. But, we're, but we have to find resilience from within that. So we're not just vomiting on other people, all of our, you know... You know, how worthless we think we feel, you know? Anyways. <laughs> yeah. You think about that distance itself. I mean, to me, that's you picked up, right? That's the equanimity. Yeah. That's knowing, that's knowing everything that's happening, but the ability to be balanced, to react to that in a way that, of your choosing and the wise, right? Yeah. That's, that, to me, is what that... Maybe time for one more, and then is it time now? Oh, okay. Okay, so um, we'll just dedicate real quick for one second, yeah. So I usually like to start a talk with some kind of motivation, and then at the end we dedicate all the, we call it merit in Buddhism, but it's kind of not a great English word (laughs) to use. But it's basically all the collective energy we put in. And this energy is also a shift in our worldview, in our perspective, how we view ourselves in the outside world. So whatever shift happened, whether it was a good or bad one for you, (laughs) whether it was small or large, we're just going to dedicate also all the energy we put into listening, contemplating, and meditating for this hour and a half together to both our own awakening, that this may become more energy, more effort, more efficacy in uncovering our Buddhahood our enlightened nature. And this is in connection with all others, all other sentient beings who have the same potential. 
So we're dedicating this that we may become awakened for the benefit of all sentient beings. And then we can imagine just sharing our merit in the form of light, just moving out from our hearts, filling the room here, sharing our merit with each other, and then moving onwards into the city of Long Beach, Los Angeles, California, the oceans, America, the Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, Canada, maybe. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> Canada, Alaska, further and further, just compassing the whole earth with this light of awakening. Then moving out into the universe, becoming limitless. Just rest in that for a second. Okay, so thank you so much, and really appreciate your energy and questions and all that today. Yeah, I always enjoy coming here, so. Well, I say that to every group, but I really, <laughs> but I really mean it with you guys. <laughs>